It's always a joy to be able to come and be a part of y'all's worship. Uh, this is a, a family for me. Uh, I really do. Uh, I was thinking about this this morning. I really do feel like this is a place where I feel at home. I've been able to be a part of this church for so long. It's a gift to me. Um, and today we're going to be continuing to look at the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 3, looking at verses 6 through 13. Uh, every time that I come, we're going to continue to plod away through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we're now kind of in the, the middle of the book. But even though we're in the middle of the book, one interesting thing I'd love to point out is that pretty much the entire section that we have been looking at so far is all one big thanksgiving, all one big expression of Paul's delight and joy in the Thessalonians. He loves this church deeply, and that's a part of what makes his ministry to them so powerful. Um, but uh, we are now going to listen to God's word, starting in verse 6. I'll be reading through verse 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It's right for us to pause and ask for his help in understanding it. Please pray along with me in your hearts. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are present with us even now by your word and your spirit, and that through these things, you can bring into our life, your life, into our hearts, your love, your joy. Set this time aside for us to grow in those things. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know if you caught what you sung earlier when we were singing the hymn, the great hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, but it contains a line that I deeply love. It contains a line that says this, Fading is the worldling's treasure and all its boasted pomp and show, but solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. What I love about that line is, is the author of that hymn is saying that there's, there's solid joys that we all want, solid joys that we all long for, but how do we get those solid joys? How can we have it? The, the hymn writer says that, that only Zion's children can know such solid joys. And perhaps you've experienced some of the times when you've thought that you would find a sense of joy in something, and it wasn't solid. 
It was effervescent. It kind of was like grasping at wind that, that you can't hold. The author Aldous Huxley, best known for A Brave New World, once said this, the right to the pursuit of happiness is nothing else than the right to disillusionment, but in a different name. The right to the pursuit of happiness is nothing else than the right to disillusionment, but in a different name. And what he's saying is often when we try to pursue happiness, when we try to pursue joy, we find that it's not solid, that it's empty. Have you seen that in your life? Have you felt that in your life? You know, to go from like a, a great author to perhaps more of a cultural reference that you may be familiar with more than I would be familiar with, Adam Sandler catches this well in a skit that he did called Romano Tours, where he's playing this tour guide that is talking about this great tour to Italy that, that he leads people on. But he keeps throughout this tour saying, listen, I wanna set your expectations for this tour. I want you to be clear about what we can and cannot do. We can take you on this tour, but we can't make you happy. For instance, he says, we can take you to the Italian Riviera, but we can't make you like the way that you look in a bathing suit. And so he like even does this diagram where he says, listen, this is important to me. I can take you to Italy, but if you are sad where you are, when you get on that plane and get to Italy, you'll still be the sad you, just in a different place. He was trying to get at this idea that a lot of times we think that we can pursue joy and find joy in this world, but a lot of times when we get there, when we arrive there, we realize it's still the same us. But what Paul is doing in this passage is he's giving us a window to how we get those solid joys. He's giving us a window to how we can experience a joy in the midst of a life that is filled with ups and downs, but, but is filled with a joy that, that can't be taken away, that can't be touched. How do you have a life with solid joys like that? Today, as we reflect on the passage, the, the theme, the outline is this, how to get a life how to get a life. And even that's a little cheeky, right? Because when you hear that phrase, get a life, it's usually kind of more of an insult. It's that idea like you're too interested in my business or you're too interested in something that, that is meaningless. And some of you are feeling that in your life. You're trying to get a life. You're trying to build a life. And so you're in school because you want to get a job or you're beginning a job as a way to build this career so that you can have a family and provide for them or you're, you're raising kids as a part of, of creating them so that they can go out into this world or maybe you're now an empty nester and you're trying to build the next phase of your life, preparing for retirement or maybe you're retired and you're looking around and saying, oh, what do I do now with all this time? And you keep kind of thinking, when am I going to get a life? When am I going to get to that sense of enjoyment, thankfulness for the life that I have? Paul shows us how to get there because Paul has it. Look down at verse 9. Listen carefully to what Paul says. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Do you hear what Paul is saying? First, hear the deep gratitude he has. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? 
He's saying, the thanksgiving that I feel in my heart when I think about you, it's so deep that, that even when I try to express it to God, I'm wordless. I can't get down deep enough to express out the, the gratitude that I have for you. There's this deep and profound sense of gratitude that Paul has as he's thinking about the Thessalonians. This deep sense of gratitude in his life that is so deep, so wordless, he can't express it. Don't you want that sense in your life? That your life, when you think about it, has such a sense of gratitude that you're like, oh, I can't express it. Perhaps you've touched on that a couple times in your life, maybe in, in seeing some beautiful aspect of creation or, or maybe in the birth of a child when there's just it's this deep sense of gratitude that you can't even express it. Paul says, I have that. I have that all the time when I'm going to the Lord in prayer for you. But it's not just a sense of gratitude. Paul continues and says, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. He has this deep sense of gratitude, but he also has a deep sense and a profound sense of joy. All the joy, Paul says, not just a little bit of joy, but all the joy, a joyful joy, a deep joy, a double joy. Paul says that I rejoice in my joy of you literally in this passage. Paul has this deep, overwhelming, bubbling out of his life joy as he thinks about the Thessalonians. Paul is in the midst of this reflection to the Thessalonians saying that as I think about you, what I see in my life is a deep, profound sense of gratitude, a deep, profound sense of joy. Does Paul sound disillusioned? Does he sound like he's a little cynical about life? No, it sounds like he has this solid joy, this lasting treasure that, that nothing can touch, that nothing can take. But is this because Paul's life is going well? that everything that he's wanted has come into place? No, it's not. But look what he says in verse 10. He says that as he's praying, what is he thinking about? He says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. It's not that Paul's to-do list is done. You know, sometimes I think that, that once I get this to-do list knocked out, Ooh, finally I can get a sense of gratitude, a sense of joy that my life will finally feel better. But every week that to-do list just keeps growing. Paul, as he's thinking about the Thessalonians, it's not like he knows that there's nothing that they need. And it's not like, well, I've done everything that I want to with them. He thinks, I want to be with them. I need to be face to face with them. There's something lacking in their faith. Paul has this gratitude and joy in the midst of things still undone, problems still needing to be addressed. And it's not just that. Paul is actually in the midst of this time going through his own suffering, going through his own problems. Paul says this in verse 7, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul there is going through some form of affliction, some form of suffering. He's not having this perfect life where everything is going his way. But those circumstances, that to-do list that's not done, the problems he sees on the horizon, that doesn't take away his gratitude. That doesn't take away his joy. His joy is solid, more solid than the circumstances of his life. His joy is solid more than the problems that he still sees on the horizon. 
Paul has this deep gratitude, this deep comfort, as he says, even when the things are still to be done, even when there's problems that he still feels anxious about. How? How is he able to have that? Look at verse 6. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. Here Paul had been worried about the Thessalonians, and so he sent Timothy, his companion. We talked about this last time. We, he sent Timothy, his companion, to go and to check on him, a sacrifice for him to lose his friend, but he was wanting to know that the Thessalonians were okay. And he gets this good report back from Timothy that, that they're still following Jesus, that their, their faith is, is vibrant and real, and that encourages them. But how does he talk about it? He says that Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith. He's brought to us the good news of your faith. And that phrase, brought to us the good news, is every other time that Paul uses it. Talking about the proclamation of the gospel. Every other time that Paul uses it, that phrase is talking about the gospel being announced. And I think Paul uses this with awareness. He's saying that, that when I heard about your faith still being there, still being alive, it was the gospel to me. It was the gospel to me. Why? Because as he sees their life of faith, what that does for him is it tells him that faith is real, that Jesus is real that the gospel is real, that God is alive, that Jesus is at work. This is why Paul says what he does in verse 8. He says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For now we live. Here Paul is helping us to understand how we get alive. Here Paul is helping us to understand how you can have a, a solid joy, a deep sense of gratitude. When you really live, as Paul says, is when you take comfort, you take hope, you take joy in seeing God's work in the world and others. Paul shows the secret of how you can get that sort of life is when you invest your hope in seeing God's work in this world. When Paul says, for now we live, Paul is saying that, that when I see God working in your life, that tells me that faith is real and that my own faith is alive. When I see your faith in Jesus, that proclaims to me, that tells me that Jesus is real and working in me and in you and in this world. Now, this is where sometimes we miss what we need in our life. Sometimes when we think about our life and growing in our own faith, we kind of focus in just on ourselves and our own spiritual temperature. And we think about the things that we need to do, like Bible reading and prayer and obeying the Lord. And please do those things. Those things are good. But a lot of times we're missing a key ingredient. And the key ingredient that a lot of times we're missing is investing in others. Investing in others. Because what happens is when we just look at ourselves, when we just look at our faith, our life, then we can easily begin to wonder, is this real? We can easily begin to see our slow growth or a lack of growth. We can begin to get cynical. We can begin to get discouraged. We can begin to get disillusioned. We're putting all the eggs of seeing God at work in our own basket 
And when we don't see it, we begin to wonder, is this a dream? Have you ever had a dream where in the midst of the dream you realize, oh, this is just a dream? Or when something really good is happening, what do they say? They say you need to pinch yourself, right? How is it that you know that you're awake? How is it that you know that your life is real? How is it that you know that God is alive in this world? It's when you see him working in the lives around you. It's when you invest in them your hope as a sign, as a glimpse of God's kingdom coming to bear on this world, that you gain the fruit, the encouragement of seeing from them what you need to remember, that God is real, that God is alive. What snaps you out of your cynicism is God's life breaking into the lives of others. I experienced this Tuesday night. It was Duke NC State. They were playing. It was a big game. And so it was one of the smallest large groups that we've had on campus. And so I'm kind of feeling bad about myself and my efforts and my work and wondering and feeling cynical, like, am I doing a good job? And the next day, one of my students, who's kind of on the fringe, who's just beginning to come to RUF, he told me that, you know, yesterday uh, I brought a friend to RUF. And he actually asked me to go. And he's not a Christian, but he wanted to go to RUF with me. And so I wanted to let you know that he was there. And that was the thing I needed to hear the most. Because that reminded me that my greatness or my weakness, that's not what matters. But God's work on the campus is what matters. I had to take my focus off of myself and be brought to see God's work, not through my own growth, but through God's working in another's life. That's what pinched me. That's what helps me to remember that God is real, that God is alive. And we need to put in our life all these Ebenezers, all these stones of remembrance by surrounding ourselves with people that we are praying for, that we are investing in so that we can see their growth and speak that back to our hearts that God is alive, that God is real, that God is at work. And Paul does this. He's invested in the Thessalonians, his life, knowing that these were going to be preaching back to him the gospel, preaching back to him the reality that Jesus came into this world to change people people like Paul and like them. You see, when you pursue happiness just for yourself, it's not solid. It leads to disillusionment. But when you invest your life into others, it yields the fruit of solid joy, deep joy. And it's not because when you invest yourself in others, you're not going to see problems. You see, that's what often keeps us from doing this. You know, if, if I'm honest with you, I don't like to get involved in other people's lives because it feels threatening. It feels dangerous. Have y'all seen the like, commercial on TV about like, the, the pan with the, the, such a great nonstick coating that like, the guy blows on it and the fried egg floats in the air? Every time I see it, like, I really should get that pan. But I want my heart to be like that, you know, not to like feel the, the hurt and the pain of people. But why? Why is it that, that I'm like that? Why is it that a lot of times we, we pull away from relationships when there's this danger, there's this risk? 
It's because a lot of times we don't feel like we have what it takes to be able to love deeply, to be able to be invested and involved in someone's life. To get involved in people's life feels risky because it's costly. To get involved in someone's life feels dangerous because a lot of times we feel like we don't have what it takes to really love somebody. A character in Ray Bradbury's book, Fahrenheit 451, says this. He says, the truth is we need not to be let alone. We need to be really bothered once in a while. How long is it since you were really bothered about something important, something real? That line stuck with me because I don't like being bothered. But I love how he says it. You need to be bothered once in a while by something important by something real. You see, the, the reality is a lot of times we protect our heart by pulling back from relationships because we want to be an unbothered person. But what we're doing is when we're stepping back from others to prevent our hearts from being bothered, we're actually stepping away from what is real and what is important. And the more that we step away, the more that we're disconnecting ourselves from what is real, from what is important, that God is alive in people that God is changing people. And so Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand that their faith is a gift to him because it preaches back to him the reality that God is at work. But he also wants them to understand that this isn't just for him, but this is also what he wants for them, that he wants for them to have this same reality coming out. He wants them to invest their heart, their love, their lives into others just as he's done. So that look down, what does he say? Starting in verse 11 and going on, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. There Paul is saying, listen, I want this for you too. I want you to be loving others the way that I love you. I want you to be uh, investing your heart in relationships with real people, people in the church first, but also throughout Thessalonica. I want you to be giving out your love to others, just as I have done to you, so I want you to do to others. But how do they do that? Paul tells them that the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. You see, what keeps us with that Teflon heart idea is that we don't have love within ourselves to give, that we're already scrounging around trying to have enough love in our life, having enough strength in our life to make it for ourselves. But perhaps we're thinking about it the wrong way. Perhaps instead of staying back from relationships because we don't think we have enough love, we need to step into relationships to realize the love that we have. That's what Paul is saying, that, that the love that you need for relationships, for others, to really invest in someone's life, to, to serve them, to care for them, to pray for them, to guide them into a knowledge of Christ, that love doesn't come out of what you already have, but it's what you have in Christ. And that the way that you love that way is because as you love, Jesus makes your heart love enough so that you abound in love for one another you feel like you're abounding in love? 
Do you feel like you've just got so much love, you, you don't know what to do with it? It's just got to go out into the lives of others? Could it be that you have more love in you than you realize? But you don't see it yet because you haven't used it yet. In Luke 6, Jesus says something interesting. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use it will be measured back to you. The measure you use it will be measured back to you. This is a principle Jesus wants you to understand, that you want to know forgiveness? Forgive. The amount that you forgive others is the amount that you realize that you're forgiven. You want to feel not condemned? Don't condemn others. The extent to which you live in a life of mercy towards others is the extent to which you realize God's mercy towards you. And this is what Paul is saying too. Do you want to know love? Give it away. The extent to which you give your love away is the extent to which that same love will be measured back to you. And to what extent? Jesus says that, that it's pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your lap. Not just that you get an equal back for what you give, but an abundance back. That's what Paul is saying, that what Jesus does is as you pour out your life, what you realize is you're abounding in love, that love is overflowing everywhere, that you can't contain it in your little basket, that it's flowing out into your life, into your lap, into everywhere. Do you feel that much love that's just overflowing in your life? Perhaps you haven't yet because you haven't poured it out. Maybe the problem isn't that you are loving too much, but that you're not loving enough. Maybe by trying to feel safe from feeling bothered, you're disconnecting yourself from what is real, what is important from Jesus and his love. But how do we know that this is real? How do we know that this works? As we know this is real. We know this works because Jesus is real, because Jesus is alive. And in fact, he demonstrates this for us. Jesus didn't just teach this principle. He lived this principle out. I mean, think about this. The night that Jesus was betrayed, Judas the betrayer was in the room with him and his disciples. Would you feel bothered knowing that? We know that he knew that Judas was going to betray him. Would you feel like, well, I don't want to waste my time with him. But what does Jesus do with Judas right in the room? John says this, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel, that was wrapped around him. Jesus was able to love someone who, who could have bothered him, who was going to bother him, who's going to betray him. But how was he able to pour out his love even to Judas? How was he able to strip down and take the form of a servant in order to love Judas? John tells us. 
He knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. John tells us that's the key. You have to understand this to understand what Jesus did, that it wasn't just this great moral example that we follow, but he's showing us the path, the way that you can love and sacrifice and give is only when you realize that you have been given richly love and that love is yours still to gain. Jesus was able to love deeply because he knew that he had been loved deeply and would be loved deeply by the Father. He didn't worry about running out of love because he knew that the eternal Father was always going to be pouring into him more love than even the sun could handle. Don't you see? This is the reality that we have when we have in Christ, that by being united into him, we're given all the love that we ever could need. And this is what Jesus does with the love of the Father. He doesn't keep it for himself, but he always pours it out. This is what Paul tells us in Philippians 2 when he says, have this mind among yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, stripping down, washing feet, being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul says he lived this out because he knew he could give away his glory because God would give him glory. He could give away his love because God would give him love. And he knew that the more that he gave away, the more that he would get. And Paul wants us to understand that this is how we live too, having the same mind, the same heart as Jesus, to know that if we want to realize that God is real, if we really want to know his love, the best way that we can do that is to give it away, to give away our love. And through this, what happens is verse 13. He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with the saints. Paul wants their hearts to be established, to look like Jesus. And so he's calling them to live like Jesus through Jesus. I want your hearts to be ready for Jesus and his kingdom. And so I want your hearts to look like the kings. But you can't establish it. He has to establish it. He is the one that pours the love into your life. He's the one that pours the love into your heart. But what you're called to do is to live like it's real, to live like it's true, to live like he's alive, to live like he's the king. And the way that you do that is by seeing the kingdom break out in the lives of those that are around you through investing your hope in seeing God work in others. And this is the way that we are changed too. As our hearts are transformed, it happens through us, not just growing in our own faith, but seeing others grow in their faith too. You know, I want to encourage this church that part of why I feel like a family when I come is y'all are a loving church. I really feel loved by this church. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a sign that, to me, God is real and alive in you because of your love. Now, if you are here and and you're not a Christian, I, I want you to think about that too. Because understanding Jesus' love isn't just going to happen by yourself. Yes, he can speak that love into you. But to really know Jesus' love requires people. 
because it's through the horizontal and the vertical coming together in the body of Christ that we really get to know his love. But also, if you're here as a Christian, I want you to think about this dynamic, that that fellowship, what we do on Wednesdays or, or Saturday morning breakfast or Sunday in worship is not about you coming and getting, but also about you coming and being and giving, investing your life in others, hearing the needs of your brothers and sisters and praying for them and getting to see glimpses of God's work in their life. That speaks back to you. That preaches the gospel to you, not just what is up here but also what is down there. You need that. That's why you have to get deeply involved into the body of Christ so that you can see the deep work of Christ slowly, sometimes quickly, but powerfully in the lives of others to speak back to the reality that King Jesus is alive and at work. And the extent to which you believe that Jesus is alive is the extent to which you're willing to invest in the lives of others. The extent to which you invest your life in others is the extent to which you will see that Jesus is alive. But you can do this because you're never really risking a loss of love. You're never really risking that you're going to find yourself empty of love. Because as you are pouring out that love, regardless of the results, regardless of the problems, regardless of the to-do list, as you're pouring out that love, what you will find is that Jesus is coming there and filling up everything that you poured out, even more than you pour out, so that your heart is abounding in love. He emptied himself to fill you of love. He stripped himself of his glory to serve you by clothing you in his glory. And he wants to have you so abound in love that it fills up your life and it spills out into the lives around you. Your king is generous in his love. and He wants you to believe that that love is real, to try him at it, to test the depth of his love for you by giving it away richly to others, just as he gave it away richly to you and found the deep joy of the Father in his own love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the depth of your love. It is vast, unmeasured, it's boundless, and it's free. We pray that we would live as though that's real and alive. And through that, to experience the solid joys that come from seeing your love transforming other lives. Being reminded of the way that you are transforming ours. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.